Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're always making decisions, whether you see it or not. You are always making trade-offs. So if you're in a job that to do perfectly would be impossible, right? Because the, the number of incoming messages, the number of projects you're working on, you know, it's just sort of, it, it doesn't fit. It's just a question of like, which problem do you want to choose to have? Because it's kind of built into the situation that there's going to be one. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, uh, welcome back. How was your holiday? It was fantastic, thank you. Like holidays should be. Oh, good. Well, we we missed you. It's good to see you over this Zoom window once again. And uh, <laughs> whose voice was that we heard at the top of the show? That was Oliver Berkman, a longtime Guardian writer who now spends most of his time writing books. And his latest one is called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And it's effectively about how short life is. June, even that title makes my heart beat just a little bit faster because, you know, I'm middle aged and the inevitability <laughs> of death. It's kind of freaking me out. Is this uh, is this episode going to be a big bummer for our listeners? Absolutely not. This book is incredibly entertaining and it is really bracing in the best possible way. As I was reading it, I had some really stimulating but kind of heavy internal conversations and some important discussions with my real life nearest and dearest about how we spend our time on earth. And the more you appreciate how precious and uncontrollable and potentially short life is, the more you can enjoy it or at least focus on the things that are important to you, which to many of our listeners will mean working on creative projects. All right. I'm going to trust you and uh, dig into this interview anyway, uh, despite my dread. What do we have in store for our Slate Plus members this week? So Oliver's book contains a really interesting chapter about the benefits of doing things with others. You know, might be something relatively simple like getting together with friends or a more ambitious collaboration like singing in a choir. And I asked him about what that means for our temporal sovereignty. Temporal sovereignty. Sovereignty. What Mm -hmm. an amazing, amazing phrase. Uh, One of the things you could do with your temporal sovereignty, if you want to hear great bonus segments like that, is subscribe to Slate Plus. Uh, You can go to slate.com slash working plus right now to subscribe. And you can get things like bonus episodes of Slow Burn and uh, Big Mood, Little Mood. You get access to extra material from all sorts of shows, including this one and perhaps most importantly, at least to me, you'll actually be directly supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. Please, please sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. 
All right, let's uh, continue to June's conversation with Oliver Berkman. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Oliver Berkman, thank you for joining me today on Working. Thanks very much for inviting me. So I wanted to talk with you because I absolutely love your new book, 4,000 Weeks. And rather than have me try to describe it, I'd love to hear your summary of the book. I guess it's ultimately an attempt to just sort of think through the challenge of time management and managing our daily time, but in the context of taking seriously the fact that, you know, we're finite human beings and we're all going to die. And (laughs) this finitude imposes, has certain ramifications for how we think about uh, time on a on a day-to-day basis. Another way into it would be to say that it's sort of what I figured out about time after spending years as a sort of productivity geek fixated on trying to find the next technique or time management system that would that would um, solve all my problems forever. And and what happened when I after I realised that wasn't going to happen. So I'm sort of trying to think about time management as a really important question i think it gets you know that th- yeah. those those words very easily sound like something incredibly superficial or a bit sort of boring uh that they're just to do with a certain kind of uh you know how you organize meetings and email and things like that and you know those things are part of life but life is a lot more than that too indeed it in some ways i mean i think like uh your i think it was your first book uh antidote it's a philosophy book masquerading as something else, in this case, a time management book. And I, just to underline, I mean that as a compliment. Um, you know, once you get this idea that a decently long life is just 4,000 weeks into your head, it's very clarifying. You know, it, it, it helps you realize, so you might want to make some decisions or you might want to take some action. Uh, it, it is just very bracing somehow. You mentioned that you are a recovering productivity geek. Can you paint me a picture of your life at the peak of your geekdom? Yeah, I guess this would just be, you know, um, a very anxious and stressed person, which I still can be sometimes (laughs) today. But the difference would be that I would be constantly spending large chunks of the time that I might more usefully spent actually doing some of the work that was overwhelming me trying to sort of I guess in a in a metaphorical sense trying to sort of lever myself maneuver myself into a position over my life that felt like I could sort of handle anything that was thrown at me um, implement all the ambitions I had for my career while also not disappointing any of the people who were demanding things of me and I guess more practically that that takes the form of kind of drawing up ever more high resolution schedules in 
notebooks that cost a lot of money with I'm, I'm gonna stop you there because this is this is my only I swear this is the only thing that aggravated me in your book you keep referring to these overpriced notebooks as if that is the biggest you know sin in productivity geekdom it is it is not I I, I need to call you to test for your stationaryism here I'm only speaking as someone who has spent a shocking amount of money on those notebooks <laughs> that sort of that phase of productivity obsession where I really believed in it before it started to become obvious to me that there was something kind of flawed with with this whole approach. It, it is that feeling that tomorrow or next week or maybe next year, there's going to get to this point from which it's going to be plain sailing, right? And that, and that as soon as you get there, your work is all mm-hmm. going to sort of fit together and you're going to get it all done on schedule and you're never going to be dropping a ball or... Uh, missing a deadline and of course it relies on this idea that at some point in the future the near future you're going to wake up and demonstrate like 10 times as much self-discipline than you've ever demonstrated on any day of your life to date so it's extremely strange and doesn't really make sense when you think about it but that was that was where I was. So in a sense to um, boil things down excessively it's about kind of giving up that sense that you could control these things, that you could control these forces, that you could get a grip on all of the things that you write down in those reasonably priced notebooks, that because it's impossible to control time, and again, you you get into some philosophical questions of that, you have to make changes. This book is really, in my view, about kind of forcing people to consider, if you want to change, you have to make choices. It's okay, you don't have to. That if you want to, then you might have to make some choices. I'm happy to talk about that, but I want to sort of slightly push back against the idea that it's that you have the option not to choose. I think another way of maybe getting at the same thing mm-hmm. is that being finite, both in the sense of the amount of time that we get and in the sort of radically limited power that we have to direct sort of how it unfolds and what the future is going to bring for us and whether our tasks and projects and uh, are going to succeed it sort of follows from all of that that you are always choosing anyway. And any decision to spend an hour doing one thing is a decision to not spend it doing all the other things. Even the decision to kind of keep your options open for, for years in by not sort of committing to something, whether that's in work or relationships or anything else, like that's a sort of choice as well because you're you're choosing to that kind of experience over over an alternative. So it's a bit more about seeing what's going on already and then as a result hopefully making slightly wiser and less anxiety suffused kinds of decision um i write in the book about sitting on a park bench on a winter morning in prospect park uh, a few years ago and uh, quite a few years ago now and at the beginning of a day when i had even sort of even more on my plate than usual trying to figure out what combination of really clever scheduling tricks and time boxing and pomodoro techniques i was going to use to get through it all and just suddenly realizing that like none of this was ever going to work that you know at this point it must have been the hundredth permutation of of systems that i'd been using i'd been writing a column in the guardian for years where i got to test them out right so i was I was enabled in this um, in this problem for for quite a while by the work I was doing, and at some point, even if you're pretty dense, you know, you you finally see that if if a hundred versions of this haven't delivered the psychological payoff that you were um, 
that you were investing, that you were hoping to get out of it, then then maybe there's something wrong with the quest rather than that you haven't found the right answer yet. And I think, you know, I don't want to get too personal or too uh, sort of grand in the claims I'm making for this, but I think that that kind of defeat, that sort of admission of defeat, and it is a sort of a surrender, but I think it's an important one as a prelude to kind of doing things, was not only very helpful in sort of getting me unstuck from my in my work and helping me move on to new and fruitful directions in that, but even things like, you know, really committing to the relationship that I was in and then going on to try and start a family, all these kind of like big, scary things. I think I'd thought that on some subconscious level, when I got my life in working order, these things wouldn't feel scary. <laughs> so you could do them from a position of kind of emotional invulnerability or something. And so they sort of were getting endlessly postponed. And so I think even those things, those sort of pretty profound and personal things probably were helped along by giving up this particular kind of time management struggle. So I have a couple of questions that are really, in a sense, not intended for you, because I'm going to ask about two things that typically annoy me about books about time management and productivity. And I have to say up front, your book does not do this. But I know that you've read those books. I know that you're steeped in this world. So I feel like you can help me kind of understand this. So one of the things that often frustrates me about typical time management and productivity guidance is that it doesn't feel as practical as the books make it seem. What I mean is I tend to stop reading or listening as soon as the people advise me to like only look at email in three 20-minute chunks of the day or whatever it is that they're advising. Because while, you know, I could, yes, maybe be a little bit sort of twitch reflex about it, I'm a grown-ass woman. I know how often I need to check my email based on my job or my life or my circumstances. Like, for example... Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, which I think has a lot of really great ideas, it's simply not possible for many, even knowledge workers, to ignore email and Slack and texts and WhatsApps. It just isn't, and at least not more than once in a great while. So, And I don't like being told to take control of things that I'm really not in control of. And your book didn't raise these hackles. What's your take on guidance like that? Um, it just causes a lot of people to just say, well, I guess that's not for me then, because I can't do that. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm I'm a huge fan of Cal Newport stuff. So I want to say that as a, as a caveat before anything else. But I think there's sometimes something is lost in translation from the underlying principles here to specific tactics and techniques. And I kind of go easy on the, the latter in my book. There are a bunch mm -hmm. in the appendix because I thought it was, you know, people might want that. And I do have a few. But I'm very much mainly trying to suggest a perspective shift from which I think the techniques and tactics will sort of follow naturally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So when it comes to something like email, I'm very keen to say, and I think this is what the this is the sort of kernel of really good sense in the in the ideas that you're railing against there. I'm very keen to say, like, don't imagine that you can sort of get on top of your email in a kind of decisive way such that you're you're never going to be struggling against it. It's far better to sort of create a portion of time in your schedule that you're going to give to email and find a way to deal with the fact that when that's not what you're doing, 
yeah, email is going to be piling up and going unanswered and, and uh, you know, the decks will be filling up again because clearing the decks just isn't a viable <laughs> approach. And more generally, I guess it's just this idea that, you again, you're always making decisions, whether you see it or not. You are always making trade-offs. So if you're in a job that to do perfectly would be impossible, right? Because the, the number of incoming messages, the number of projects you're working on, you know, it's just sort of, it doesn't fit mathematically, which I think is true for many people, <laughs> then something has got to give and just sort of responding, well, I've, I don't have the option of, of neglecting my email is slightly misses the point, right? Because it's like, well, okay, maybe you are in a role where going all out on email is the thing you have to do. Then something else is going to be neglected, right? So it's like at least face up to the fact that that there are these trade-offs and that if the demands being made are impossible, you're not going to be meeting them all because kind of that's what impossible means. <laughs> so I don't think, yeah, I think there's always a risk. I mean, part of the risk is that people like me and other authors in this space who have a lot of autonomy over our schedules and, and work yeah. largely in a solitary way can sort of make the assumption that um, everyone reading can set their own hours. That's a risk that I try to be aware of. But I also think that people, firstly, generally have more autonomy, however much autonomy they do have, they probably have a little bit more than they tell themselves um, or that they mm -hmm. believe. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, that, yeah, even if you have very little autonomy, there are still choices to be made that are just given by the fact that there's more to do than you can do. So even if that's going to result in some terrible, terrible consequence from your sort of merciless boss. It's just a question of like, which problem do you want to choose to have? Because it's kind of built into the situation that there's going to be one. Does that make sense? It Is does. No, it does. It does. It does. Absolutely does. Um, so the second um, terrible productivity book trend that I want to get your take on, which again, you are not prone to, is that I think there's often a tendency to kind of idealize the sort of pre-industrial lifestyle, you know, you have this thing in medieval times, people went slaves to the clock. They didn't even have a clock. It could really get deep work done. But that doesn't mean, of course, that their lives were better than ours. I mean, they didn't even have YouTube. So where, where do you stand on the, you know, idyllic medieval times uh, trope? Yeah, I try to be quite careful about this because I do go into some uh, raptures about... <laughs> what was probably the medieval, the, the common experience of time in the medieval period. But I do try to be very clear that, you know, I think they genuinely, I think there's reason to believe that most people genuinely didn't have time-related problems and were not haunted by time or um, felt sort of attacked by time in the way that we do or, or felt in a desperate struggle with time. But they had a lot of other worse problems. <laughs> What yeah. I'm keen to try to do in my book anyway is just to sort of show or remind people, I guess, that the way we think about time today as this resource that has to be maximized or that we are guilty of wasting or that um, we have to find ways to save, that is a kind of historically contingent one way of thinking about time. And there is this other way which is broadly what anthropologists call task orientation, right? Where you're just sort of living in the flow of time. You, your 
schedule such as it is is just given by the the tasks of your life you're not always trying to sort of line your activities up against a, a sort of abstract yardstick or a timeline or a calendar or a clock or something like that you're just sort of you're just sort of fully in the time that you have and i think that was true uh, in those times and i think it is true for all of us at certain points in in life right we i think we all have certain experiences of being sort of just completely in the the flow of our lives because it it tends to be in context where it would be completely futile i think to try to manage time to try to to try to sort of arrange tasks according to a timetable or or anything like that so one example i often think of is having a newborn baby like you just have to do the feeding and the diaper changing and the waking up when it ha- when that happens and it's ridiculous to think at least for the first few months that you can put that on a on a sort of separate schedule and then i think people have that experience quite often in when they're in a crisis or they're sort of helping a friend going through a crisis there's mm-hmm. often that sort of feeling that like you're doing what you need to be doing right now which is helping this person and it just is what it is and it's obviously the number one priority and sort of this idea that you might sort of look at the various things on your plate and decide which one was most important and how many hours mm-hmm. you're going to give to this and to that it just all seems to sort of fall away in that kind of moment and anyway i think there are there's something to be said for the idea that we could uh, recover a bit of that sort of total abandonment to time in more mundane settings than that we'll be back with more of june's conversation with oliver berkman after this Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hey listeners, Isaac Butler here, just dropping you a a quick line to say that we want to hear from you. Whether it's to ask us for advice on a creative problem, tell us a guest you'd like to hear on the show, share your own creative triumphs, drop us a line at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-WORK. We are the last people alive besides your grandparents who enjoy real phone calls and voicemail. So uh, give us a call. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Now let's return to June's conversation with Oliver Berkman. 
I must say that you do very often kind of call on the wisdom of monks. And I, I think monks, although, as you observe, they are very concerned with the clock. They, they, have, they are very, um, you know, their timetable is tight. Um, but they also, in a sense, are also like, they're kind of cosplaying medieval peasant life, aren't they? Like, they've, that's a very radical choice. Um, but it is a choice to kind of, to surrender in a certain way to time and, and also um, what you're going to do with your time and your life. This is such a fascinating point because, yeah, on the one hand, they probably are basically the culprits in terms of inventing modern mechanical clocks and um, and causing us all to be in this kind of um, constant struggle with time. But the monastic hours, especially in the sort of the main Benedictine tradition, yeah, are this extraordinary container that leads to a very peaceful relationship with time. There's a anecdote about... Um, Joan Chittister, who's a, a sort of quite widely published author as well as a nun, and about asking her sort of incoming, are they called novices? I don't know, the, the incoming. Yeah, the novitiate, yeah. Right. Asking them to answer the question, like, why do we pray? And getting all these different answers to do with, um, you know, being overpowered by divine love and all the rest of it, and sort of telling them, no, we pray because the bell rings. <laughs> You pray because the bell rings and that's time for praying. And there's another anecdote like this in a, in a recent, uh, well, I think it's actually forthcoming book by, um, by the writer Jonathan Malasik, uh, which is called The End of Burnout, I think, um, where he went to sort of hang out with, with monks at um, a monastery in New Mexico, I think. And you have this kind of exchange with them, like if it's the work period and you don't get your work finished, before the bell rings for the next period, uh, what do you do about that? And this monk replies, you get over it. <laughs> and so in both cases, in slightly different different tone, I guess, you get this idea in the, in the monastic approach that you just do one thing when it's time for that thing and you move on to the next thing. And sort of giving up, letting go of the previous thing is a big part of the discipline there. And although on one hand, that's kind of lining things up very strictly against a timetable, it is also kind of surrendering the responsibility and the sort of anguish of trying to manage your time and just saying, these are the rhythms and we go with them and we do all the things we can do and bring our own sort of agency and effort and intelligence and all the rest of it. But within these temporal containers, we don't try to actually kind of mess with the temporal containers themselves. I know that you're a note-taking geek, uh, so we have to spend a little bit of time on that. You dedicated an issue of your newsletter, The Imperfectionist, somewhat recently to notes. And since it included a word that is guaranteed to perk me up, Zettelkasten, I have to ask you how you wrote this book. Um, I'll just start with one very specific question. It contains a lot of quotes. You, you know, you call on wisdom to support or sometimes challenge your ideas um, from writers, philosophers, monks. Um, how did you keep track of all those nuggets? Do we need to explain what a Zettelkasten is or is, or is the demographic of this podcast? It's everybody surely knows. No, please. Uh, you're right. Please. Um, let's try to limit our um, references to Nicholas Luhmann to fewer than 15. <laughs> the Zettelkasten is, is one pretty geeky approach to building a sort of evolving database of notes. I think the basic principle here is, is 
and it, and it maybe is much easier for some people to understand than for people trained in journalism. But if you come through journalism, <laughs> like we did, um, you think that what happens is you get an assignment, you go and research it, you turn your notes into an article, and then you probably just like throw out your notes or put them in a drawer or something, or, or they just they clutter up your computer. <laughs> the thing that I'm trying to do much more of, and I think is crucial, especially these days for how it works for, quote, creators, and that the Zettelkasten is just one particular implementation of is this idea that you could create a sort of expanding body of interlinked evergreen notes um, so that the information that you're acquiring the ideas you're having the connections you're making they're not just sort of done after one assignment and then you start from scratch again and I think there's there's sort of creative reasons why this is important and there's kind of economic reasons why it's important for people sort of freelancing right that you've you 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 can't afford to just have to start from yeah. absolute zero every time you want to write something. Instead, you can think of it as sort of taking something from this sort of central repository. And the the Zettelkasten, which let's not even go into this, but it's this is about like <laughs> connecting all the notes in a very specific way. Linking your thinking. Right. And the idea and the sort of progenitor of this, uh, Nicholas Luhmann sort of described it once it reached a certain size as being like a research partner right a sort of a system that would somehow come up with its own ideas um in a way that sounds kind of supernatural but i think makes sense <laughs> in a way because the idea that you know you can make more connections than you can necessarily hold in your brain or recall at any time so that's what the zettelkasten is thank you i don't really have that and i didn't write this book with one of those i think there are two things that really i've reluctantly learned are important here one is not to think that i am ever going to get to like the specific system that then lasts for all time and just to accept that every few months i'm going to be tweaking it in some important way and so it's never there's no closure in what my systems are for for things like that and then secondly uh, i think that this is what i was writing about in the email newsletter you mentioned to that, that I sort of have to keep it messy for it to work, mm. for it to generate the ideas that, that I need it to generate. My personality wants to impose brilliant, rigid order and detailed taxonomies and classifications and to have everything really perfect. But then I find that I don't actually want to maintain that system. It feels far too much like homework. Keeping it messy and also keeping it the kind of thing that you can do when you're tired and not really feeling yeah. it so much is, is important yeah. and so actually a lot of the places where I was storing the quotes uh, that I was then drawing on for the book were just a huge mess of of individual notes <laughs> uh, first of all in a in a, an application called bear and more recently in one called Ulysses uh, I'm not sure that particularly matters I'm sure it could be Evernote or um, a bunch of other different uh, platforms as well so I do sort of sporadically go in and try and impose a little bit of order on these things, but I've found that sort of tolerating more disorder than I'm comfortable with is actually really important for making them work. And then, yeah, it's just a question of trying to implement this philosophy of like things that I read, ideas that I have, conversations that I have, they just like all are candidates for this big mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Rather than that, you know, I am now writing this chapter, so I will go away and find the books for it, research that chapter, and then forget all that information the moment I've right. I've done it. Yeah. So the notion of like emergent ideas that that 
almost like a compost heap that, you know, things will, the things that you put into it will transform and they will also help new things to kind of shoot up, new ideas to, to emerge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people who do follow a more, a slightly more rigid system probably have that experience in a more discernible way. Like they can see how two notes connecting through this particular cross-referencing system suddenly give rise to this idea for an article or idea for a book or whatever. I, I still sort of have the experience that ideas just come to me uh, when I need them, hopefully, um, not too close to the deadline. Um, but I think that the reason that they do when they do is because of a lot of this kind of tilling of the soil. I feel like I've made myself sound far more diligent at this than I actually am. Um, it's just a question of, in a way, it's almost the opposite of thinking that you're a great ideas person, right? It's the, it's, it's the approach that like, I don't have enough insights and ideas to waste them. They all have to go into yeah. the system because I'm not going to be able to have another 20 just on, on order when I need to. That's the thing that I think often with these kind of notions of emergent systems that are very, uh, you know, it sounds great very appealing but if you have a deadline to write you have you know you've got x chapters to write i mean did you do it in a kind of chapter one chapter two right exactly so there's a way of thinking if you really have these systems up and running in the way that i sort of fantasize about even the chapters would sort of just kind of <laughs> fall out of the system exactly just fall, shake it a bit and they'll fall out yeah. exactly exactly no that didn't happen at all i <laughs> I had a lot of false starts. I got the basic structure of the book, which I think is a was is for me anyway totally central to making any of this work. Um, and then yeah, when it came to those individual chapters, I was totally still going off and finding some books and talking to some people, exploring some areas of scholarship, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, just for that chapter. Mm. But sort of less than I would have been, and also less and less as the book went on because I would find that I had sort of gathered stuff that I thought was going to be for chapter two and couldn't use then that turned out to be really relevant to a later chapter and then in terms of just like specifically how I end up writing it I don't think I've ever managed to I mean I think I basically still just write 800 word mini essays <laughs> I just write them in hopefully kind of organic and linked ways I had this realization the other day that probably since I was about 11, with a few exceptions with sort of science exams and maths exams at school, but all I've done with my work, you know, whether I was at the in high school or university or a reporter or an author, has been to sort of take a bunch of sources and turn them into kind of 800 word portions of writing. <laughs> Because that's what you're doing when you're writing like a history essay at, at, in an English yeah. high school anyway. And then that's what you do as a journalist writing columns. And if you look carefully, I think you can probably see where the 800-word essay joins are in, in the books <laughs> I do. So it's, it's incredibly like monomaniacal approach to, to creative work when you look at it that way. So you provide 10 tools for embracing finitude at the end of the book. Can you share just a couple with our listeners? Well, in the context of work and in the context of creative work, I think um, there's a couple there that sort of amount to the same principle, which is to use any technique that is going to encourage you to focus on one thing at a time, both on the level of individual tasks, right? Not trying to literally do like three things at once, but also then on the level of big projects to use whatever autonomy you have over your work to kind of 
sequentially do one thing that you're working on, one article, one report, one piece of work, finish it and move on to the next one and make the other ones wait, even though it makes you feel anxious, even though it would make you feel falsely like you're in control of your work much more if you were kind of like touching each one of them. All that really happens then is that you, as soon as one of them gets difficult, you just bounce onto the next one. So you never actually have to go through the difficult stuff with, with any of them. Um, you're killing me softly, Oliver. One way of doing that, I, I mean, there are lots of different specific methods, but I, you know, I sort of give this very simple approach in the book. You could, for example, keep two to-do lists, right? One is sort of as long as you like. It might have hundreds of items on it. You're just put, you're just throwing everything there that comes up. And then the other has, say, three slots on it. And you move three items from the long list to the short one. And the rule is you're not allowed to move any more to that list of three until you've done one of them. And that's the list that you do, right? You, you're, so you're sort of creating a bottleneck and you can't make more space until you've moved something out by doing it. And it's just this kind of slightly, it's always a bit absurd, right? Because you're kind of treating yourself <laughs> like a little child, which I think we often probably have to do. Yeah. And you're saying like, okay, there are all these things that really need my attention and that are really legitimate ways of spending my time. But right now it's these three and it's no more until one of those has moved away. And that quickly gets quite satisfying, actually, especially if you're sort of a sad productivity <laughs> type person, because, you know, you, you have to make a choice each time. Well, so you sort of, there's like a natural prioritization that goes on. And then, yeah, you, you accumulate this list there's a, there should be a third list, by the way, which is a list of things that you have done, oh. which makes you feel great if you're a bit weird, because then, you know, you 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 have this, you, you see this accumulating list of things that you've managed to do, and you don't fall into the trap of thinking, like, I've got nothing done today, yeah. because it's there in front of you. Thank you so much. This was, I really, really did enjoy the book. Uh, Love talking. We could have really geeked out more. Anyway, uh, thank you, Oliver Bertman. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance— then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, June, I have to admit it. You were right. That conversation was not a bummer. In fact, it was quite funny and inspiring. But before we get to how the inevitability of death should inspire <laughs> us to make different choices or perhaps make choices differently, I have to ask you about this notebook thing. <laughs> it, it's come up a few times in the show and, and you know, extensively in this one. How do you use notebooks as part of your organizational routine? And 
And what notebooks do they use and, and how expensive are they? They are not very expensive. In the great scheme of things, even expensive notebooks are very cheap. But this is a little tricky for me because, yes, I am a major, major stationary nerd of many years standing. But I have to confess, this is pretty much heretical, but in the COVID working from home era, a lot of my organizational workflow, workflow is a term you have to use when you're a productivity nerd, has gone digital. Wait, wait, what do you mean heretical? Do you mean like we're going to get emails from angry stationary people? There's like a stationary note-taking community that's going to be like showing up at Slate's offices with pitchforks being like, give us June, give us June. There might be. It it could happen because, yeah, I've gone a little bit digital and it's weird because it happened while we're, you know, working from home where you don't have that thing where, which is the one bad thing about analog, which is you're out somewhere in the world, you're ready to get down and do some work. And then you realize that that note that you wanted to refer to is in another notebook in another place. We're always with all our stuff all the time. But nevertheless, it has happened. I've become a little bit digital. But I do still keep a pocket notebook with me at all times, usually a field notes, despite the problem with the paper. Uh, I'm surrounded literally and figuratively by paper at all times. I can see at a conservative estimate, I'm going to say at least 30 notebooks directly in front of me on my desk right now, Uh, about another 20 alongside me. I've got probably about a thousand in this room. So yeah, I have a lot of notebooks. I'm particularly fond of Japanese paper, but it could be notebooks, could be loose leaf, binders, index cards. I am the kind of person who orders index cards from Amazon Japan. But my daily work to-dos are now stored in an app called Dynalist, and the notes for my book project are in a program called Obsidian. Wow, 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 wow. Uh, <laughs> so when you track, because I know you go to Japan frequently, do you like come back with a suitcase full of notebooks? Yes, is the short answer. Yes, we okay. split, when we go to Japan, we spend approximately four-fifths of our time stationary <laughs> shopping. I'm not even joking. Unbelievable. Well, I think our listeners can probably tell from this something that I already know from our work together over the last 18 months, that you are a productivity and organizational system super nerd in the best (laughs) and most endearing possible way. You think about this stuff very hard. You have a lot of organizational habits that you've developed over the years. One of the things that Berkman's doing with this book and in our interview is challenging a lot of the ideas we might have about this stuff. Did it lead you to rethink any of that or want to change certain things about your own systems and ideas? Well, it's funny. As I was listening back to the interview, I know like how my voice changed and how I got all excited when he, when I, it was me that said it, but I said the word Zettelkasten. Uh, I got all loud and, and goofy. Um, And I thought he explained the Zettelkasten concept very well, much more concisely than I could have. But a Zettelkasten is just one example of something called a personal knowledge management system, uh, something also referred to as a second brain. And the idea is that you keep your ideas in a place or in a system where they'll always be accessible, where they kind of rub up against each other and where you can always make use of them in many different contexts. So if you store your ideas well, they'll constantly be available to be utilized. You might be working on a book about acting, but a thought that occurred to you when you were when you read a book about trains or when you listened to a podcast about politics might be relevant. And as you're revisiting those old ideas, whether that's in analog or digital form, 
new ones emerge. There's lots of videos on this concept on YouTube, many of them inspired by a book called How to Take Smart Notes. But Oliver's book made me feel even more strongly that that kind of thing is important because life is too short to waste ideas. See, this is very fascinating because I don't have any sort of system like that. I mean, I take notes, I underline in books, I dog ear, I write in margins. You know, I do like I do like all of that kind of stuff, but I don't have any kind of system. And, and in part, it's actually a creative belief on, on my yep. part that the weird filtering and forgetting or half remembering and connections that your brain makes sometimes in your subconscious is actually a really important part of the creative process that not being so exactly organized to allow room for your mind to do weird shit with what would have been in your notes is actually kind of um, really useful in a way. But maybe that's just like people have different brains that are built differently and need different things. No, I, I'm, I agree with you completely. I think it is a feature, not a bug. But I also know from my own experience that sometime I'll have that kind of weird connection and then I'll be like, okay, I remember it was on the right side of the page, but which book? And then you can spend so much time digging through your library trying to find it. So if you have taken the time, and it is time to put them in some place where you can like search for them or, or just access them more readily, uh, you can actually use those ideas more efficiently, I think. But it, it's definitely a choice. Yes, totally. I mean, I guess, you know, you can probably hear some of my skepticism here. Yeah. My fear is always, it's actually something that, that Oliver Berkman talks about in the interview. You have such an in-depth or complicated or rigid system that you actually spend all your time on the system and it might hamper your creativity. Has that ever happened to you or have you seen that happen to someone else? Oh, don't get me wrong. I definitely spend a lot of my time thinking, have I just fallen in love with a system and it's just taken up all my time and I really should be doing something more basic like reading or writing. Yeah, of course, I definitely spend a lot of I worry a lot about that because, you know, another thing that Oliver points out very well, there are only a certain number of hours. So if you spend time writing down and managing ideas, you're not doing other things. Um, but I think for everyone, there's some kind of sweet spot, like hideously messy is perfect for some people. Uh, massively rigid is perfect for some people. Probably most of us have a happy place that's somewhere in the middle of that. My happy place, at the moment at least, is in Obsidian. Well, that's great. That's great. I, I <laughs> loved what Oliver had to say about making choices because I really think that it's one of the most helpful ways to think of a work of art, right, is that someone or some group of people made a series of choices. Some of those were intentional choices. Some of them were not. Some of them they didn't think of as choices. He's trying to encourage us to think of choices more intentionally. Uh, but I find that a very helpful way, both as a critic and as an artist, to think about the making of art. I mean, what is creativity? But, you know, you make something and then you make a bunch of choices, right? Yeah, totally. I, I, I You know, sometimes the conversations that we have really stick with me. And one that is, I'm honestly haunted by is something uh -oh. you said many episodes ago when you were in the late stage of your book but it wasn't quite done done and you talked about how you were seeing how choices that you made early in the process how much they'd shaped the book because once you've gone down one path it's not like there's no going back but it's hard to backtrack you know every road we take is also a road not taken and 
to a certain extent, we have to be good with that. We have to make our peace with it. Yeah, totally. A, 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 uh, a novelist friend of mine, when I was getting close to finishing the first draft, I was like, oh, but I have all this work to do to get to the ending. And she's like, no, no, no. Endings are easy because it's actually you've already made all the choices. It's just you've got to like have them come to fruition. Endings go much faster than beginnings. I was like, oh, OK, that's good to know. Um, and, you know, and, and some of that is because a choice, making a choice, whether in life or art, can cause a lot of panic because, you know, we uh, we only have so much time on this earth, right? That's what this episode is about. Or yeah. so much time before a deadline. And uh, each choice by its very nature makes some choices no longer viable. The director, Anne Bogart, talks about choices as somewhat violent. Oof. Once you make a choice, you've murdered all the other choices you could have made. You know, once you're like, the set is going to have one metal table on it and it's going to be this metal table. Well, it's no longer going to be these wood tables or these plastic <laughs> tables. all those choices. They've, you've shot them all or whatever. And, um, that's where I think I really found what, what Oliver had to say about perfectionism really helpful. There isn't actually a perfect choice. Sometimes there isn't even a right choice. There are definitely wrong choices, but then there might be like multiple right things to do. And and the part of what you have to do is not obsess over perfection and just make a choice self-consciously and keep moving forward. Totally. But another thing that he said that I, I actually maybe found more, uh, kind of made me sweat more, but also, you know, helped me make some choices was that postponing choices and avoiding tough decisions is also a choice. Mm -hmm. uh, That's probably my big takeaway from the book, that things will never just work out. You know, if you have too much work, if you're trying to take on more than is take onable, or you have a really big ambition, there's no productivity hack on this earth, no notebook or application that will somehow magically make it achievable, unless you take something else off your plate or you ignore something that you think you have to do. So you have to stop postponing. You have to figure out what you really want to do or what you really need to do, what steps you can take to get to that place and just kind of get on with it. But not deciding is also a decision. Right. There is no such thing as not deciding. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of getting on with it, perhaps we should get on with it. <laughs> and thank you all very much for listening this week. We hope you have enjoyed this show. Uh, if you have, please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you will never miss an episode. And now, one last final for this week. Slate Plus Pitch Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast. Full access to all the articles on Slate.com bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and How to Do It. And right now, you can sign up for just $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Oliver Berkman for being our guest this week. And enormous thanks, as always, to our stellar producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week with a special episode in which Zach Rosen will be sharing some of the best creative insights from his podcast, The Best Advice Show. Until then, get back to work.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.